Well, we're in Psalm 145 tonight. Psalm 145 is a psalm of David, and it's a Hebrew acrostic, which was a Hebrew poetic device where uh, they would begin a stanza, the first stanza in the poem, with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Then the next stanza would, would, have, would start with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and they would go throughout the entire alphabet, uh, stanza by stanza. And it was just a way to organize poetry, to put some thought into it. It's really beautiful. I think there are seven of them in the book of Psalms. This is the last one in the book of Psalms. But it is a really, uh, it's really beautifully put together. And you can't see it in your English translation, but if we were reading this in Hebrew, uh, we would see that every stanza starts with the subsequent letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, Havav, Zion, and all the way through that alphabet. And so it's really, really pretty neat. And I think the, fir- the, the third verse sums up what this psalm is all about. This is the, the thesis, if you will, the, the major driving uh, point of this psalm. It says, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. David is writing this psalm because he wants us to understand how great God is. That's what the psalm is all about. And so we are focusing on the greatness of God. That's why we call this study, How Great is Our God. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to just jump in to Psalm 145 and talk about the holiness of God tonight. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. We're grateful, Lord, for your presence here. We're grateful, Lord, for uh, who you are and the ways you work in our life. And God, I just pray that you would use this time to give us a, Lord, a, a hunger for you, a hunger for your word. I pray that you'd use this time to, to challenge us, to inspire us, Lord, to lead us to, Lord, more authentic, genuine worship. Uh, God, I pray that you'd use this time to change our lives. And that we would leave, Lord, more in love with Jesus than when we walked in today. We'll thank you and praise you for that grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, well, how great is our God? Uh, the, the entire psalm is, is about the greatness of God. And it's very important that we study God. Matter of fact, the most important reality that you can study in the universe is God. Because He created it all. And so there's nothing more important to study than the Creator I love this quote from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. It comes from a sermon that he preached when he was 20. One of his first sermons he ever preached um, at New Park Baptist in in London, England in the 1800s. He said, The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls God. Father. So there's nothing more important than you can study than God, his attributes, his character, his nature. That's why I love Psalm 145, because as you read it, he's just just sharing these different aspects of the nature of God. Things like God's power and God's transcendence and God's eminence and God's faithfulness and God's goodness and God's mercy and God's love and God's grace. And and today we're going to study God's holiness, the fact that God is holy. We see this at the end of the psalm, Psalm 145, verse 20. The Bible says, The Lord preserves all who love Him, but all the wicked He will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and let all flesh bless His, look at the, the, the adjective here, holy name forever. Let all flesh bless His Holy name forever and ever. So the Bible speaks here and in many places of the holiness of God. So what I want to do is I want to walk you through uh, 
what we mean when we say that God is holy. And I want to walk you through a definition of the holiness of God, what that attribute, that, that characteristic of God means. And then I want to talk about the implications for our lives, kind of the format we've followed throughout this study. So let's begin by defining the holiness of God. And I've got a couple of different quotes for you, or three different quotes here for you. The first one comes from A.W. Pink. He says, The sum of all moral excellency is found in him. He is, God is, absolute purity, unsullied even by the shadow of sin. Holiness is the very excellency of the divine nature. The great God is glorious in holiness, which is a quote from Exodus 15 11. As God's power is the opposite of the native weakness of the creature, as his wisdom is, is in complete contrast from the least effect of understanding or folly, so his holiness is the very antithesis of all moral blemish or defilement. So God is, is a God of moral perfection. That's what A.W. Pink is getting at in this lengthy definition. Then Albert Moeller writes this, The holiness of God refers to his separateness from his creation. He is what we are not. We are finite. He is infinite. In other words, God is transcendent, and his holiness reveals the difference and the infinite contrast between his nature and ours. Some people call this the, the otherness of God. God is different than us, and, and we're going to talk about what that means as we work our way through this. And then I like what J. Alec Motyer writes. He writes that God's holiness is God's total and unique moral majesty. His total and unique moral majesty. And so those are some, some helpful definitions to begin to wrap our mind around the holiness of God. But to kind of sum those up, I've given you two basic aspects to God's holiness. The Bible uses the term holy applied to God in two different ways. So let me give you these two basic aspects of God's holiness. Number one is His uniqueness. His uniqueness. Turn over to Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15. After God delivers the Israelites from Egyptian bondage and Egyptian slavery. And in Ephesians chapter 15, look what the Bible says about the Lord. This is titled the, the Psalm or the Song of Moses. And Moses says in verse 11, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? Watch this. Majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. And the answer, of course, is no one. No one is like God. He is holy, majestic in holiness, and no one is like him. There's an otherness to him. And then turn over to Isaiah chapter 6, one of my favorite Old Testament passages. Isaiah chapter 6. This is the, the great vision that God gave Isaiah when King Uzziah died. It's a vision of the exalted Lord in the heavens. And it says in Isaiah 6, we see a little glimpse of what's going on in the heavenly realms. It says in verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said... Loving, loving, loving is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Is that, is that what your Bible says? Okay, um, mine in there, okay. Uh, one, okay, let's go back. I'll do, let's do that again. One called to another and said, Merciful, merciful, merciful is the Lord of hosts. Is that what your Bible says? Okay, well, let me take another shot at it because we're maybe reading two different things here. 
One called another and said, powerful, powerful, powerful is the Lord of hosts. Is that what your Bible says? No. What is the theme of heaven's praises? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Why is the holiness of God the theme of heaven's praises? Because God's holiness encapsulates all that he is. His power, his love, his mercy, his grace, his transcendence, his kindness, his patience, his righteousness, all of that is encapsulated in the term holiness because all of that separates God from everything and everyone else, right? It's what makes God God. It's what makes God unique. And so that uniqueness, that separateness of God is called his holiness. And so in heaven, the, 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 the angels are flying around the throne singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Wait, why do they say holy three times? Well, some scholars believe they say holy three times to speak to the triune nature of God, that God is, is one or triune persons of God. God is one in nature. I just said a little heresy right there, accidentally. God doesn't have three natures. He has one nature, one essence, but that one nature or essence exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so perhaps they're singing holy, holy, holy to speak of the three persons of the Godhead because they are all God. They are all holy. Or perhaps they're just using the Hebrew poetic device of repetition to really drive home a point that in Hebrew poetry they would say something three times to get the point across. And so perhaps they're just saying holy, holy, holy to get the point across that God is indeed other. He is holy. He is a God of total, unique, moral majesty. And so a lot of times the word holy speaks of God just being separate and different than anyone or anyone else. Who is like God? The answer is no one's like God, right? No one is all-powerful except God. No one is all-knowing except God. No one is all-present except God. No one is perfect in unfailing love except God. No one is perfectly righteous except God. And we could go on and on and on speaking of that which makes God God. It makes God different than us and different than anything else in the created order. And so holiness is often used to speak of God's uniqueness. You got that? Now, the second way that the word holy is applied to God is the way most of us understand it, or most of us think of holiness, and it speaks of his absolute purity. His absolute purity. Turn over to the New Testament book of James. James chapter 1, verse 13. The Bible says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So don't say that temptation to do wrong comes from God, because God doesn't doesn't dabble with wrongdoing. That's not who God is. God, God is not tempted himself, and he doesn't put temptation to sin in front of our lives. Why? Because he's good. He's perfect. He's a God of absolute purity. And then over to 1 John. Keep turning over to 1 John. Chapter 1, I think this verse really clarifies and drives home what the word holy is all about. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. John writes, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. That's a good description of holiness. God is light, perfect, light, good, and in him... There is no darkness at all, no evil, no wrongdoing. Everything God does is right. 
Everything God thinks is right. Everything God says is right. Every plan and purpose of God is right. Everything about God is right. He's light. There's no darkness in him at all. That's good news. Aren't you glad that we don't serve or worship a God who kind of changes in a capricious way? Sometimes he's good, sometimes he's not. You know, you think about some of the the gods that were created in the Roman pantheon or the Greek pantheon and Zeus and Hermes and these different these different concepts of 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 of, of deity that they dreamed up. And and these god these gods they dreamed up were a mess, weren't they? Who would want to serve and worship these gods who are who are petty and evil and wicked and selfish and jealous and all these who who would want to worship gods like that? But our God is a God of absolute purity. He is perfect in who he is and what he does. And the word holiness is applied to him in that vein. It's often what the term holy means. And so there are two basic aspects to God's holiness. When you see that God is holy, you're saying God is unique. He's other than us, different than us. And God is perfect. He's a God of absolute moral perfection, total, unique, moral majesty. So giving you that, I know just gave you a lot to think about and chew on, so just chew away. But let's talk about the implications of the holiness of God. I think this will help clarify for you a little bit what we mean by the holiness of God and why it matters to our lives. Number one, the holiness of God should lead to greater worship. The fact that God is holy should lead us to greater worship. We see this all throughout the Bible, that that we should respond as worshipers to the character and nature of God. And the fact that He is holy, that He is who He is, should cause us to respond in worship to him. So two thoughts under this point of greater worship. First of all, God's holiness is beautiful. The reason we should worship God's holiness is because it's a beautiful trait or beautiful characteristic. Turn over to Psalm 29. Psalm 29.1. Another Psalm of David, he writes, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Then it says, worship the Lord in the splendor or the array of holiness. In other words, God is, is wrapped in holiness. It's who he is. And in light of who he is, we ought to worship him. We ought to praise him. Over in uh, Psalm 96, 9, it says the same thing. Worship God in the array, the splendor of holiness. Some translations say the beauty of his holiness. His holiness is who he is, and it's beautiful. It's, it's, it's a picture of his perfection and his greatness and his uniqueness. So because God is holy, we should say, you know, that, that's a beautiful characteristic that we should talk about and we should praise and we should bless and we should ascribe worth to. So God's holiness is beautiful. Secondly, holiness calls for reverence. When you're in the presence of holiness, it ought to cause you or lead you to reverence. Let me show you a a couple of examples. Turn over to Psalm 89. Psalm 89. Verses 6 and 7. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the counsel of his holy ones. 
and awesome above all who are around him. And then over in Psalm 99, look what it says at Psalm 99, verse 5. Exalt the Lord our God, worship at his footstool. So if you're at the footstool of God, it's a way to say, hey, humble yourself before him. You're at his feet, worship at his footstool. Why? Holy is he. So when you recognize you're in the presence of holiness, it should provoke in you a response of reverence. And if being in God's presence, worshiping God, doesn't provoke in you a sense of reverence, then you don't understand holiness. Because if you understand holiness, it will lead you to a humble reverence for God, a, a, a fear of God in your life. And let me show you just some, some stories of how this plays out. Look what it says over in Exodus Exodus chapter 3. This is a familiar story. This is the call of Moses. God appears to him at a burning bush. The burning bush is used to get the attention of Moses. And in verse 3 of Exodus 3, Moses said, I will turn aside to this great sight why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is what? Holy ground. So he wanted Moses to take off his shoes to to help him to understand he was in the presence of a holy, holy God. And that taking off the shoes is is an act of reverence and humility in the presence of God. Same thing happens over in Joshua 5. Before uh, Joshua leads Israel to attack the city of Jericho, to overthrow the city of Jericho according to God's command. Uh, Joshua has this encounter with a soldier, an angelic-looking soldier. I believe it's a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, but that's another sermon for another day. Uh, but he's there in the presence of, of this, this awesome warrior. And, and Joshua says, well, well, are you for us or for them? You're obviously a warrior, awesome to behold. Are you on our side or the other side? And, and the warrior basically says, I'm not on anybody's side. I'm on my side. I've heard one preacher say, hey, I didn't come to take sides. I came to take over, right? I got a plan for how you're going to overthrow Jericho. And then as Joshua draws near to this warrior figure, again, we hear the words, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. So I believe it's more than just an angel. I believe it was a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. And so we see this idea of taking off the shoes, uh, reverence in the presence of a of a holy God. Holiness calls for reverence. If, if you don't understand that God is holy, perfect, unique, majestic, awesome, then you won't have a sense of reverence when you worship Him personally or corporately. And, and I think what's happening in a lot of churches today is there's this... I want to be careful because last week I was kind of... I used the word dumb several times, and I was, I, was, I, was in this, I, was in a, I was kind of preaching angry. It's not fun to preach angry. Um, but I was preaching angry, so I don't want to preach angry tonight. Um, and I don't, want to, I don't want to come across as overly critical. But a lot of what we call worship in churches today is just, is just flippant, um, going through the motions. Uh, I'm trying to think how to say it. Cool whip. Um, Light, light-hearted um, gatherings where everybody feels good, but really nobody understands they're in the presence of God. 
I don't know if I said that well, but, but I, I see that kind of happening in the body of Christ today, and, and everything's happy, happy, happy. And, and, and of course, God wants us to be joyful, and, God, and God, if we follow God, we, we experience the blessings of following Him, the blessings of relationship with Him, and, and, and all of that. But somewhere, we've got to recognize that God is holy. And, and, and that should call for our reverence, that we're here to worship Him in reverence, to bow our, our, our hearts, our lives before Him and say, God, you are, you are God, you are holy, you're calling the shots, and it's just a privilege to be here in your presence. So holiness calls for reverence. And if you lack reverence in your life toward God, then you, you really don't understand the holiness of God. So the holiness of God should lead to, to greater Worship, greater worship. Secondly, the holiness of God demonstrates that we must have a Savior to be right with God. The holiness of God demonstrates we must have a Savior to be right with God. You see, holiness magnifies our sin. Turn over to Luke chapter 5. Luke 5, I want to show you this. Great story here. Look in verse 1, Luke chapter 5, verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now remember, Peter's a professional fisherman. I mean, he knows about fishing, and he knows... When you're out all night and you're not catching anything, then you know, they're just not schooling or you're not in the right place. It's just not going to work out that night. And so Peter, as a professional fisherman, says here, uh, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. They came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he watched this. He fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Isn't that an interesting response? Jesus says, Hey, go out and cast your nets again. He does it and has this wonderful blessing, this wonderful provision of God. But instead of saying, All right, Jesus, high five. That was awesome. He falls down and says, I'm a sinful man. He knew he was in the presence of otherness. He knew he was in the presence of uniqueness. He knew he was in the presence of moral majesty. And as he understood a little bit better in that moment, the holiness of God, what did he realize? His own sin, right? You see, people will never, and this is so important, write this down if you have, if you have your pen notes in front of you. People will never embrace the good news if they don't understand the bad news. People will never embrace the good news of the gospel until they understand the bad news. People will never run to Jesus to save them if they don't understand they need saving, right? And a lot of people don't understand they need saving because they don't understand the holiness of God. They think God just kind of winks at their sin and, and uh, that it's all going to turn out okay because they're basically a good guy or a good gal and, and you know God's not going to hold their sins against them. They don't understand that God is a God of absolute moral perfection. Over in uh, Luke 18, we see... The, the tax collector saying, have mercy on me, a sinner. As I understand who you are, I understand I don't deserve you or your presence or anything. Would you just have mercy on me? You're holy. Habakkuk 1 says God can't even look upon sin. He's so holy. Unforgiven sin will never be in his presence. And you understand that, you say, oh, there's some bad news. God can't be in the presence of unforgiven sin, and I'm a sinner. 
So I'm separated from him. And if that's the case, I need a Savior to wash my sins away, to forgive me so I can be in his presence, right? You'll never embrace the good news if you don't understand the bad news. And the bad news is this, God is perfect and we're not. The Bible says all have fallen short of the glory of God. That's the next line. Holiness magnifies our sin and our sin deserves punishment. But here's the games. I want to show you two games people like to play with God. And again, this comes from not understanding holiness, okay? I meant to have some cards to show you this graphically, but I forgot to do that. So just you have to use your imagination tonight. But let's just say that I have uh, some, some just white cards and some, some red cards. Let's just say the white cards represent, um, represent the good deeds we do in this life, okay? So, so let's just say I've done, you know, 100 uh, good deeds in my life. You know, I have 100 white cards. And let's just say that the red cards uh, in my left hand represent all the sins I've committed. Probably be more than 100, I'm just guessing, okay? And so here's the game a lot of people think they're going to play when they stand before God one day. They're going to come and stand at the, at the gates, and the Lord's going to say, Why shall I let you into heaven? And they're going to hold up their right hand full of all the white cards. Hey, I was a, a decent parent. I provided for my family. Um, I, you know, I, I volunteered at the homeless shelter. I was a, a faithful church member. Um, I, um, I, you know, I, I worked hard at my job. And they're going to say, God, you're going to let me into heaven because all the good things in my hand, right? And the Lord will say, in a manner of speaking, what's in your other hand? Well, don't worry about that hand, God. It's behind my back, see? Don't worry about that. Look at all my good deeds. Look at all my good deeds. What about the other hand? See, a lot of people think they're going to get into heaven because of all their good deeds when they have all this unforgiven sin in their life. And unforgiven sin will not go into the presence of God in heaven. Isaiah 59.2 says, write that verse down. Isaiah 59.2 says that our sin separates us from God. Unforgiven sin will not be in heaven in the presence of God. So if you go to him with all this unforgiven sin in your life because you've never embraced Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, even though you might try to show him your good deeds, your sin separates you and will keep you out of heaven. And it gets even worse, will send you to that awful place called hell. Eternal separation from God, a place of torment, weeping, and gnashing of teeth. That's how the Bible explains it. So, but people think that God's just going to say, hey, you are a good person. Come on in. Don't worry about the other hand. Listen, if God winked at our sin and said, come on into heaven, he would not be holy. Right? But he is holy, so he's not going to play that game. Sin must be punished either by Christ on the cross, and we embrace that punishment as we embrace him as our Lord and Savior and say, Jesus, thank you for paying the punishment for me. Or if we ignore Jesus, we'll pay our own punishment in hell forever and ever and ever and ever. And that's what the Bible says. That's one game people try to play with God, again, because they don't understand holiness. Here's another game people will try to play on Judgment Day, all right? They, uh, they have their good deeds and their bad deeds, you know, their good deeds and their sin, and, and uh, they stand before God, and, and God says, you know, you have, you have some sin in your life, and you've never embraced Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, and those sins are forgiven. Those sins will separate you from me forever. And a lot of people on Judgment Day are going to say, yeah, I know I've got, you know, four or five, you know, issues, you know, in my life. But compared to old so-and-so, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. 
oh, so-and-so has like 25 issues in their life. Look at all their sins, God. So compared to, to them, I'm okay. And so you can let me into heaven now, God. You see, people don't understand the holiness of God, so they use the wrong comparisons. And they think, well, just because I'm better than old so-and-so, I'm going to heaven when I die. But the comparison is not old so-and-so. The standard is God's perfection. And the Bible says all have fallen short of his perfection, right? So because God is holy, it doesn't matter how you measure up to other people. If you're a sinner, you need a Savior. And you will not go to heaven if you've not embraced Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior who washes away your sins, that barrier between you and God, and brings you into relationship with God. You will go to hell and be there forever paying for your sins. And so... A lot of people don't understand the holiness of God, so they think that they're just going to stand before God one day and say, hey, I'm a good old guy, good old gal, and God's going to wink at them and say, hey, come on into heaven. It will not be like that at all. As a matter of fact, Revelation 20 says that on that day when the, the dead are raised up and they're standing before the great white throne of judgment, they will be judged according to deeds in a book. Everything that we've ever done recorded in a book. And if you don't know Jesus, that book will be brought out. And there will be no excuses. There will be no you know, getting out of it. No talking your way out of it. It will be right there in the book. All the things you've done. All the rebellion. All the sin. All the iniquity. All the immorality. And there will be no excuses. And, and it will be clear. I deserve hell. And our only hope is that we know Jesus Christ, and our name is written in another book, the Lamb's Book of Life. And our sins are blotted out by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's our only hope. And so when, when I stand before God one day, I don't plan on him getting that book out. Those sins have been washed away. I plan on him getting out the Lamb's Book of Life and seeing my name in there. And not my name in there because I'm good. My name is in there because Jesus is good. And he saved this sinner named Wade Humphreys. Amen? And so... If you don't understand the holiness of God, and a lot of people don't, then they have all these wild thoughts about Judgment Day and heaven and hell and what it's going to be like, and they just don't get it because they don't understand that God is a God of total, unique, moral majesty, a God of perfection. He's light. There's no darkness in Him at all. And and unforgiven sin will never be allowed into His presence. It's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And so... The holiness of God demonstrates that we must have a Savior to be right with God. When you understand that you fall short of His glory, it will cause you to understand that you need a Savior. Here's the next thing about the holiness of God. The extent of God's holiness, just how holy God is, was displayed at the cross. Isaiah 53 says that that Jesus was was bruised for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brings us peace. By his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, it says. And the Lord, and we, we've all turned our own way, but the Lord has laid upon him, upon Jesus, the iniquity of us all. So how, listen to me, how serious is God about punishing sin? How holy is he? He's so serious about punishing sin that he poured out his wrath on his son. That's how holy God is. God doesn't wink at sin. He doesn't sweep sin under the rug. Sin must be punished by a holy God. And if he didn't punish it, he would not be holy anymore. 
The Bible gives us a, the declaration, God is holy, so he will punish sin. And he's so serious about punishing sin, he cannot just let us off. Forgiveness is not just God saying, okay, no big deal, you're forgiven. Forgiveness is God saying, your sin deserves punishment, and because I love you, instead of punishing you, I punish my son in your place. He took your sin on himself, and he took my punishment for you. But notice, sin still had to be punished. Even in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. God is so serious about punishing sin, how holy is he? That he poured out his full wrath and fury on his Son. Think about that. The Bible says that Jesus is our propitiation. That word propitiation means that he satisfied the wrath of God. That means that the full wrath of God against our sin was was poured out upon Jesus on the cross. Isn't that amazing? So God is holy. He's so holy, he would pour out his wrath upon his son to make a way for us to be saved. Which leads to the next thought. The cross allowed our holy God to love sinners and yet rightly despise sin. Look over in Romans 3 with me. I'm going to finish up here in a moment. I'll take some questions, but look at Romans 3. We're almost done. Romans 3, verse 26. The, 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 the context here is God putting forth His Son as a propitiation, putting Jesus on the cross and punishing Him in our place. And it says, It, the cross, was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might, watch this, be just by punishing sin like it deserves because He's holy, and the justifier, the forgiver of the one who has faith in Jesus. So the cross, listen to this, the cross allowed a holy God to punish sin while at the same time making a way for sinners like you and I to be forgiven and saved. Isn't that awesome? But notice, sin still has to be punished. That's why Jesus came to earth to take on human flesh, born of the Virgin Mary, fully God, fully man. And Jesus went to the cross of his own volition, sent by the Father to be punished. To be punished. The, the theory of the atonement, which I think is the biblical theory of the atonement, is penal substitution. He went as our substitute, and he went to pay the price, penal. He went to pay the price for us on the cross. The penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus came to earth. And so, the extent of God's holiness was displayed at the cross. If you ever wonder if God's holy, just look at Calvary. If you ever wonder if God loves you, look at Calvary. Because the cross was the way that God could be holy and punish sin and still display his love for sinners like you and me. As a matter of fact, look over in 1 John. I'm going to show you this verse before we move on. Love this verse. 1 John chapter 4. Turn or swipe over there to that verse. 1 John chapter 4. Look what it says in verse 10. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but He loved us, watch this, and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Sent His Son to take His wrath for us. And so the cross allowed God to be loving and holy at the same time. The wisdom of God made a way through the cross for sinners to be saved. And so 
the extent of God's holiness was displayed at the cross. Now here's the last thing about the holiness of God, and I'll take some questions and we'll be through. The holiness of God serves as a pattern for our lives. And so it's important we understand that God's holy, we need a Savior. We embrace Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior because we've not been holy, we've, we've fallen short of His glory. But when we become believers in Christ, then God expects us to begin by the power of His Spirit, by His grace, to begin to grow in holiness, to look more and more like Him. That's the plan, that saved people imitate Him. And, and through a change process called sanctification, look more and more like Him. He's the, now, now, as Christians, listen, He's the standard we're shooting for. Look at what it says over in 1 Peter. This makes it really, really clear. He quotes Leviticus here. In this New Testament letter, to make this point, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, Peter writes, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That's interesting. Don't act like you used to act. You're a different person now. Don't, don't act like you used to act. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Why? It is written, you shall be holy for I am what? Holy. So we are to pursue holiness because God is holy. And we're to imitate him. Ephesians 5 is clear. We're to imitate God with our lives. So when you become a Christian, by the power of the Spirit living in you, by the guidance of the Word of God before you, and the encouragement of the church around you, you are to begin to pursue growth in holiness. Your life should look more and more like the perfect character of God. We won't be perfect this side of heaven. Paul said, I've not yet attained it. I'm, I'm reaching forward to what is ahead, forgetting what lies behind. I'm not yet attained the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I'm, Philippians 3, I'm, I'm straining forward. I, I know I'm moving forward. Hebrews 12, I'm running with endurance. The race is before us, fixing my eyes on Jesus. We're, we, you know, we never arrive this out of heaven, but we should be making progress. We should look different than we did five years ago. If we're believers in Christ. We should look more like Jesus than we did five years ago or ten years ago. There, there should be a, that change process happening as we cooperate with the work of God in us and obey His commands before us, fueled on by the exhortation of the people of God around us. And so, the holiness of God serves as a pattern for our lives. And that right there can, can deal with a lot of foolishness, can it? A lot of the things we do that are just foolish, we can just look at them and say, this is not in conformity with the holiness of God. It's, it's just foolishness. And I ought not to do it because God's holy, so I should be holy. And we, when we uh, begin to pursue Him, then we will see that growth of holiness in our lives. But here's just a kind of a quick thing. And I learned this from Jerry Bridges. He's one of my favorite authors. And he wrote a book called pursuit of holiness, which is all about this issue I'm talking about right now. And he wrote one called Discipline of Grace, and which I love, one of my favorite books, and um, uh, Practice of Godliness, some great books. Anyway, in Pursuit of Holiness, he says, I think it was Pursuit of Holiness, in Pursuit of Holiness, he says, listen, 
when you really begin to pursue holiness, you're going to need to remember the gospel. Because when you really start to seek holiness, you're going to see just how, just how much junk there is in your life. And it can be really discouraging to, to see the, the, the junk that's there. And so it's in those moments you say, you know what, in Christ, I've been redeemed, I've been forgiven, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so I, my sins have been washed away, I've been reconciled to God, He's my Father, nothing will ever change that. And so, so listen, I, I know I'm forgiven, I know I'm not standing before God condemned, but because of His grace, I want to make progress. I don't want to make progress to gain His grace, I already have His grace in Christ. But because He's been so good to me, I want to honor Him. And the way I honor Him is by imitating Him and growing in holiness. And so you and I need to pursue holiness. Be holy, God says, for I am holy. The holiness of God serves as a pattern for our lives. And this can, this can help with the decisions, can it? Should I do this or should I do this? Well, what, what would the character of God say about this situation? How would God respond to the situation? Whatever he would do, that, that's what I need to do. That's how I need to follow him. The holiness of God serves as a pattern for our lives. And so, those are implications of the holiness of God. Listen, God is, um, God is awesome. He is awesome. And, and we need to understand in a deeper, fuller way how holy He is. It'll change our worship. It'll change our lifestyle. It'll change our Bible reading. It'll change our church attendance. It'll change everything if we grow in our comprehension, we never fully wrap our minds and hearts around it, but if we grow in our comprehension of the fact that God is holy, it will be a game changer in our lives. We can't gaze at the holiness of God and stay the same.